This is a podcast about new crops. You're going to love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. If you step back and think about what you just described, it's unbelievable. It's incredible that somebody has figured oh, yeah. how to do this. It's just, it's cool, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's totally wild uh, that this is something that we can, affo- honestly, that we can afford to do. Welcome back, everyone, to the Cutting Edge Podcast. It's been way too long since our last episode, but we're back better than ever. I'm Jason Fishbach, the Emerging Crops Outreach Specialist with UW-Madison Division of Extension, and one of the hosts of this uh, podcast. And what better way to reboot the Cutting Edge Podcast than with an episode on hazelnuts? A lot has certainly been happening uh, with hazelnuts, and particularly with hazelnut breeding. So I thought we'd go behind the scenes and talk to some folks carrying on this exciting work. So here we go. So let's start with a brief overview of where we're at here in the upper Midwest with hazelnut breeding. Option one, plant varieties of European hazelnuts developed in Europe by Oregon State or most recently by Rutgers University. In general, this is not a viable option though as this plant material isn't sufficiently winter hardy nor is it sufficiently disease resistant in our opinion. Now as a hobby, sure, but I don't think we can build an industry around European cultivars. So option two are endemic American hazelnuts that come from the wild in both Minnesota and Wisconsin. Uh, They are cheap and widely available from private and public sources. They are certainly winter hardy and disease resistant, but there as of yet are no proven varieties. And the seedlings, which is what are are available, are, are highly variable and tend to have nuts that are are too small. So option two isn't really an option to build an industry around. So that brings us to option three, hybrids, which are offspring from crosses between European and American hazelnuts. Private and public breeders have been making such crosses and selling plants for more than 100 years. Uh, And in the late 90s, early 2000s, lots of growers planted these hybrids in the upper Midwest. We think nearly 200 acres in small plantings all over the place. So we here at UW and University of Minnesota, we got involved in 2007 at the request of these early adopter growers. On average, the plantings of these hybrids weren't good enough, but individual plants, or even the top 10%, were really nice plants with potential to support an industry. So we made copies of these top plants, evaluated them at multiple locations, and have since selected the top 10 or so. These are what we call the UMHGI first-gen selections, and we're doing everything we can to get them propagated and out to growers. Here's the thing though, none of these first-gen selections are perfect. Plus, if you add up the work of the private breeders to generate this material, the growers to grow it, and us to evaluate it in the replicated trials, it has taken us nearly 30 years, and who knows how much money to generate these these first-gen selections. So this time and expense is why we don't have more perennial woody crops in our agricultural system, even though we desperately need them. We have to be able to generate improved plant material faster and cheaper going forward. And luckily we have some new tools to help us create this second generation of hazelnut material for growers in the upper Midwest. And helping us with this and leading the charge is is Dr. Julie Dawson at the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of of Horticulture. Uh, Julie, welcome. 
thanks for uh, taking the time this morning. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. So maybe just a quick overview of what you're working on uh, right now with the Hazelnut Project, this summer in particular. Sure, so we're working with you, obviously, uh, and with Lois to look at ways of improving the breeding program so that we can select parents that are most likely, as you said, to make the best crosses and then plant the progeny that are most likely to have the combination of traits that we are interested in. And to do that, first, we need to study the, the diversity in American hazelnut to see how much variation there is for traits that are really important, like the kernel size and quality, uh, different types of bush architecture, resistance to EFB. You know, there, are, there are some key traits that need to be there for growers. And so we want to study how much variation there is in American hazelnut for those traits. And then what we can do with genetics to predict which parents would give progeny with the best combination of those traits. And then after we work on predicting the best parents, then using genetic information to take all of the progeny, the potential progeny, and plant only the ones that are predicted to be the best in terms of the combinations of those traits. Now, anytime you use genetics to make prediction, there's a lot of room for error and it's not a perfect prediction in any sense, but the idea is that we can understand these traits a bit better and then make decisions that are improvements on essentially planting a random sample of the progeny, which is what you have to do if you don't have any genetic information. And we have a large planting in Spring Green this year in collaboration with the Savannah Institute. And the idea with that is we've made a lot of different crosses between the best, uh, the, the, the best current hazelnut clones uh, that Lois and Jason have been working on for many years. And we want to study the inheritance of the, the traits that are really important in order to build these statistical models linking the genetics of each bush to the phenotype that you actually see so that we can make predictions going forward. And hopefully it won't, it won't necessarily shorten the time so much, but it should increase the probability that we get that really good bush that has the best combination of everything. So let's take a, a little deeper dive. What do you mean by genetic information? Like what specifically are you able to measure or quantify or understand when it comes to genetics? Yeah, so the, the technology for genotyping has advanced to the point where it's relatively inexpensive to get a lot of different, what we call markers along the genome of each bush. And so we might have 150,000 sites or so where bush one might differ from all of the other bushes in the population. Now it won't differ at all of those sites, but each bush has a different combination. And so by using that information, we can essentially calculate how related each bush is to every other bush in the population. And because we know that relatives usually resemble each other more than unrelated individuals and closer relatives resemble each other more than distant relatives, we can use that information on exactly how related each bush is to every other bush to make a prediction about how it would do 
in five years, say, you know, we genotype it when it's a seedling, we make a prediction about what its kernel characteristics are going to be, and then we validate that and improve the model as we go. So the genotyping itself doesn't really give us that information about the genes per se that are involved in that, those traits, but it allows us to use statistics to predict what that bush will be like in four years or what the progeny of that bush would be like. Now we're also working on understanding the genetics of the traits. And so we can use those markers and again, a statistical model to test at each site along the genome, is that site more or less associated with a certain phenotype than another site? And so you, you test each marker to see whether it has a higher likelihood of producing a certain phenotype. And then eventually you can get down to having a marker that's really in the gene that controls kernel width, say. And then you can use that to select. The, the trick is that most of these traits, including kernel width, are not controlled by one gene. They're controlled by many genes. And so then you have to have many, many markers in order to actually tag each of those genes, which is a very long-term prospect. And in general, in breeding, unless you have very simple traits, so certain disease resistances are simple, not EFB, but certain other types of disease are very simple traits. But unless you have those very simple traits, usually you're going to be better off using the genotypes as a way of calculating these relationships with all of the other bushes in, in your program and making these predictions rather than trying to track individual genes. Now we might get lucky and we might have a few traits that are simple and only controlled by a few genes. And in that case, we can, we can localize those genes by genetic mapping and then develop a marker that would track that particular gene and that particular trait. And that makes it relatively easy to screen things early on where we would have you know, hundreds or thousands of seedling plants and we could screen them all for that marker and decide which ones are going to be resistant or which ones are going to have the best kernel characteristics. That, that would be you know, essentially us getting lucky because most of these traits are probably controlled by many genes and that's what we're studying now. And in that case, what we would do is genotype all the progeny, hundreds of thousands of them, and then predict which ones are going to be the best. And you know, it's not a perfect prediction. So we would probably plant the top 30% or so, knowing that our predictions are not 100% accurate, but knowing that that 30% are more likely to be good than if we take, took a random 30% from the progeny population. So let's let's use an example of how this could work. Um, one of the things that growers think about or obsess about is plant height, especially those that are harvesting mechanically. If the plant gets too tall, like European hazelnuts tend to do, they don't fit through the harvester. So if I'm hearing you right, in theory, we could make crosses between parent A, parent B, and maybe parent B is relatively short, and parent A tends to get too tall. Uh, we could then make a cross, grow out all those seed, take a little piece of leaf from each of those offspring, each of those seedlings, uh, do the genotyping, basically sequencing part, part of the DNA, and then 
from that information, we could predict whether that off that seedling, which is still alive, say in the greenhouse, we haven't thrown it out yet, is going to be a tall or short plant. Is that exactly. roughly how it would yep. work? Okay. Yes. Yeah, and it, probably it would be a continuum, right? You would have shorter plants and taller plants. So you would predict about how tall it was going to be and decide, okay, we'll plant the 30% that's predicted to be shortest. Uh, and that would save you the resources of growing all of those seedlings out for four years to see how tall they got, because usually you don't have that. And so you're essentially saying, well, we got you know 200 or so seeds from this cross, but we can only afford to plant 50 of them. So we're gonna plant 50. And until genotyping was economically a possibility, it would essentially be a random 50. And you may or may not have the best in terms of plant height in that sample. But with a prediction, you can be a little more sure that you'll have the best, the shortest plants in your sample of 50 if you make a prediction first about what they're likely to be. Now, prediction accuracy is, like I said, not anywhere near 100%. And so you still have to plant more than you think you need, but it's considerably less than if you had to plant, say, all of them to be guaranteed to get the shortest ones. Right. And until you actually know that genetic control and have markers for specific alleles, you'd never be able to get to 100%. Until right. that point, yeah. right? So, I mean, even when you have a marker for a specific allele, it's not 100%, but it's a lot closer. And so, if you have, say, height is controlled by one or two genes, we could get in there eventually and say, okay, now we know which genes control height. And so, we're going to just look for a variation within that sequence of DNA and just do a, you know, a DNA marker in that gene. And we'll run that and then we'll use that only to select rather than genotyping with 150,000 markers. We're likely to not need that many markers in the long term and that will lower the cost. So the goal with what we're doing now is to understand the genetics of these traits, whether they're controlled by many genes or a few genes, and then look at how many markers and what genotyping platform we actually need to be able to make good predictions so that we can get the cost down to something that's reasonable to use in a breeding program on a routine basis rather than something that is essentially a research project that is going to cost a lot more because we're, we're just laying the groundwork for understanding the genetics. Uh, so the work that you've been able to do to date are you able to make these predictions for any traits yet or how, how far away to being able to do that are we? Yeah, we're pretty close, I think, to be able to make some predictions. So we have genotyped a population of American hazelnuts that was collected by the DNR and grown in one site that's quite diverse. And so we'll be able to, to kind of understand the genetic control of some of these traits in American hazelnut. And that by that, I mean, is it controlled by a few genes? Is it controlled by a lot of genes? That same population, we've taken data on kernel quality characteristics and on height uh, and on some of the, the bush size uh, things that are important. Um, we also have genotyped some crosses between European and American hazelnuts. And so we'll be able to look at whether things are different in that type of population than in pure Amer American hazelnut. And 
we just got the genotypes back actually yesterday. So we haven't done the predictions yet, but the goal is to build models and to look at how accurate we can get within American hazelnut and then within crosses between American and European hazelnut and use that then to predict which of those bushes would make the best parents. And next spring, we will make those crosses to then plant things out. And this is gonna take several years, right? To, to validate whether those predictions are actually good. But in the meantime, we use what's called cross-validation to see whether our predictions are good. So we can be pretty sure that we're going to have a reasonable prediction before we wait four years. So what we do is we, we hide like a quarter of the population and we use the rest of it to predict that quarter. And then we say, okay, were they accurate or not? So we'll, we'll have that information before the spring. And then we'll use that information to select the best bushes to make crosses and then plant those progeny out. We also made crosses, like I said, between the best selections of American and European crosses and American uh, selections. And those are planted out now. And so in four years, we will be able to measure the, the kernel quality traits on that. And because that population, we know what the parents are, we'll be able to get a lot closer to identifying genes within that population that are controlling certain traits if those traits are under simple genetic control. That means they're only controlled by one or a few genes. If they're more complex, we will still be able to build a better model knowing what the parentage is. And those bushes will be a really good breeding population as well because they're essentially best by best crosses. So we're likely to get some really good germplasm out of those crosses in addition to being able to really advance how we are able to make these predictions and accelerate the breeding process. Like I said, it doesn't accelerate the trees or the bushes um, time to producing nuts and to getting evaluated. We still always have to evaluate these in the field and evaluate them in multiple sites before we want to make a recommendation to growers but it will increase the probability that we're gonna get that really good bush that combines all of the traits that we want. So Julie, last question here. With all these great advances in, in plant breeding and these genomics tools, uh, things like GBS, SSR, QTL mapping, no one's ever heard of them. They're certainly not in the mainstream. But one thing has kind of made to the media and that's CRISPR. Uh, are you doing CRISPR? Are you want? to do CRISPR? Is it possible to use CRISPR for hazelnuts? What is CRISPR? Yeah, so CRISPR is essentially targeted gene editing, where you would take a sequence of DNA that you know controls a trait, and you know what modification is needed to change that trait. So we're talking about traits that are under very simple genetic control that are well characterized and that we know what all of the different alleles, which are different versions of the gene do and how to change one of those alleles to another one in order to make the plants say resistant to a disease or change the color of the fruit or something, obviously not in hazelnut so much, but I think that in hazelnut, most of the traits that we are looking at, including disease resistance, are what we call quantitative, which means that they're controlled by potentially hundreds of genes, and those genes interact with the environment in a way that's 
sometimes difficult to predict. I mean, we try to predict it using statistical models and that's a big part of plant breeding is looking at interactions between the plant's genetics and the environment. But if you're looking at hundreds of genes and their interactions with the environment, it's very difficult to make a single change that has a big difference, that makes a big difference in the uh, phenotype that you're eventually looking at. And so I think that in terms of practicality, we're not at the point in hazelnut where we could think about using CRISPR to change a trait in a meaningful way for growers. I also think that many of the hazelnut growers may be looking at um, lower input or organic practices and inorganic certification right now, you're not allowed to use CRISPR. So it would likely be better to avoid it in order to make sure that anything we release would be acceptable to certified organic farmers. Um, I think that you know, eventually we may understand the genetics well enough that CRISPR might have a use in some circumstances, but it's hard to, from my vantage point right now, it's hard to see where that would produce something better than what we can do with classical plant breeding, which is essentially what we're doing, even though we're using genetic markers, we're using them to understand the genetics, we're not using them to change specific genes in a lab. All right, Julie, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Great. Next up, we're going to talk to the one and only Scott Brainerd, who's been on the front lines in the trenches, use whatever metaphor you want to uh, do this work and uh, dive into the genetics of these hazelnut plants. Scott uh, Brainerd joins us. Scott, to give us an update on what's happening in his world. Um, Scott, welcome. And can you introduce yourself? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. My name is Scott Brainerd, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher in Julie Dawson's program at University of Wisconsin Madison. And uh, my work is focused on, uh, as as Julie discussed, um, helping to develop these ways of using genomic data to improve efficiency of selection in American hazelnut, but also these um, American by European hybrid populations. Okay. So tell us exactly what plants you're working with. Where are they? What are they? How many are there? Yeah. So we are studying, um, or yeah, we were mostly focused on three populations. And this is somewhat of a historical um, necessity, or uh, it, these are the populations that are mature and bearing. And so they're the ones we have to work with. We've, we're also uh, planting a whole slew of new seedlings um, that will be kind of designed exactly for these experiments. But of course, they're just one year old right now. So the seedlings and, and hazelnuts that we're studying right now were not explicitly designed for these experiments, but they, um, they work pretty well nonetheless. So first off is a uh, planting done um, in uh, outside of Stoughton, Wisconsin, which is just 30 minutes south of Madison. Um, those are what we call F1s, um, mostly or, or significantly uh, composed of a controlled cross that uh, Mark Shepard made. And then a farmer bought uh, several hundred together with you, Jason, put in that planting. And uh, so that's a very interesting population it also includes some 
just Corolla's Americana Czech varieties. And um, yeah, so that's about 300 or so plants. And then uh, the next one that we're looking at is a, a planting of about 600 plants in Barneveld, Wisconsin. So that's like 45 minutes west of Madison, uh, still in uh, getting into the driftless, but still uh, southern Wisconsin. And those were planted by a landowner who just got plants from the Wisconsin DNR. Um, and we've been treating that as most likely uh, wild-ish Coralis Americana. So not the product of any sort of intentional breeding with other Coralis species. Um, you know, certainly because there has been a lot of that effort in Wisconsin, there may be some, uh, you know, sort of contribution, but more of a sort of representation of like wild Americana. Again, not deliberately gone out and sourced from the wild, just seed bought by, from the DNR, but that's approximating uh, a sampling from the wild. And then the last population, uh, it's actually three, uh, again, full sib populations that are in Minnesota, uh, in Rosemount. And those were crosses that Lois Braun made a number of years ago using pollen from uh, Oregon State University. So those are true uh, like 50-50 hybrids between upper Midwest adapted material crossed with just Coralis avalana. Um, so those are three um, somewhat distinct populations and uh, just you know in terms of how they were definitely designed and grown and their location and uh, now we have phenotyped and genotyped them and are starting to look more closely at what we can learn about the genetic control of key traits in those populations, um, depending on you know some of these characteristics that I just mentioned. So phenotyping, I know, I do a lot of that, go out there in the field and measure stuff to understand yep. what that plant looks like, how much it produces for a kernel, what the kernel size is, blah, blah, blah. Genotyping, what do you mean? Do you mean like you're actually unraveling all the DNA and reading every nucleotide or are you just reading small portions of it or what have you been doing when you when you talk about genotyping? Yeah, so genotyping can mean a lot of different things. It's really just a term that um, it's sort of, you know, if you think about it as a correlative phenotyping where you are measuring the performance of some sort of trait, uh, genotyping is measuring something or detecting something about genotypic variation. Um, and depending on the technology used, you know, it can mean actually very, very different things. Uh, the method that we're using is one that's become really common in plant breeding because it's cheap and gets us, gets us uh, everything we need <laughs> to do quantitative genetics. So the method is basically uh, broken down into three steps. We first cut, we, we extract the DNA and cut it up with an enzyme that uh, slices it into small little pieces. Wait, extract the and, DNA, you mean you go out in the field, collect a leaf or something and then? <laughs> yep, yeah, yeah, exactly. So we go out in springtime when the leaves are just emerging and they're young. And that means that, uh, well, there's a couple things that are good about that. One is that there's a lot of cells in a small area. So the sort of concentration of DNA per 
unit mass of leaf tissue is really high. And then also because that tissue is young, it hasn't built up a high concentration of secondary metabolites and lignin, things that would get in the way of trying to extract and purify the DNA, the genomic DNA. Um, so we take little leaf hole punches and then we freeze dry them and then we crush them up. <laughs> and then we use uh, different extraction reagents that basically break down the cell walls and um, specifically draw out the, the genomic DNA that was in the nucleus. So um, how do you know you're not getting, because there's all kinds of stuff living on or in that leaf, right? Bacteria, fungi, maybe you've got an insect in the sample or, or something. How do you know the DNA you've extracted is actually the hazelnut DNA? What we're getting is overwhelmingly hazelnut DNA, even if there's a few other things sort of in that mix. Um, that there's a part of the process where we amplify the, the, the limited amount of DNA that we can get out of the leaves. And that's going to preferentially amplify things that are of highest concentration in the starting material. Um, and so if you have a little bit of contamination in one or two samples, it's just kind of statistically unlikely that that will be represented at a high enough level in the final prep where it would be detected on the sequencer. You've done this genotyping and I hear you just got a slug of data back. So right. what did, what is that? Like, what data did you get back? Just long sequences of A's and G's yeah. and T's and you have to make sense of that or what <laughs> happens now? Right. So, so step one is, is I guess maybe generally like that kind of sampling in the field, getting into the lab, getting the DNA out and cleaned up. Step two is putting that onto a machine, a sequencing machine. Uh, we use one that's made by the, a company called Illumina. And what happens there is these little short segments of DNA that were cut up by the enzyme that we uh, subjected the DNA to is attached to a what's called a flow cell. It's basically a small piece of glass. And then um, all of, and then, you know, these segments are about 150 base pairs long after all of the processing that's done to them. And we get a readout using a by it's actually kind of an interesting chemistry that occurs. We wash over this flow cell uh, in, in, in steps, nucleotides that when they bind to the DNA, so DNA is usually double-stranded. What we put onto the flow cell is single-stranded. So we can put nucleotides on one by one. And if they find a complementary base, they'll bind. And then unlike normal bases, these will let off a little a fluorescent light pulse when they actually anneal to any specific short little strand of DNA. And a camera takes a photo of that. So that's how the wow. chemistry works. That's how the sequencing works. It's taking basically uh, uh, 150 photos of a flow cell with maybe 6 billion little slowly growing strands of DNA. And then there's a whole bunch of software on that sequencer that decomposes those light signals into exactly what you were just saying. Little, uh, long, little strings of 150 ATCs and Gs. <laughs> and we get, you know, billions of these off of the sequencer because we're, we're sequencing, you know, 1500 samples, we're sequencing maybe 10 million, um, what we call reads, so short little segments of DNA per sample. So a lot of data comes off this machine if you step back and think about what you just described, it's unbelievable. It's incredible that somebody has figured oh, yeah. out how to do this. It's just, it's cool. Yeah. 
right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's totally wild uh, that this is something that we can afford, honestly, that we can afford to do right. uh, just in, with our little, you know, <laughs> hazelnut group, which is, you know, not uh, exceptionally well-funded or, or massive research enterprise. Um, we're still kind of an upstart here in the like ag world. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it costs about 30 bucks per sample to do this. So not huh. nothing for sure when we're talking about all, but that's everything from extracting the DNA to sequencing it to the final step, which I'll talk about, which is the data processing. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, this technology didn't exist uh, 10 years ago. Um, it was sort of in its nascent stages, you know, maybe 10 years ago, but in terms of this machine, as I've described it and its ability to do really this amount of throughput is yep. very, very new and, and yeah, really exciting because it, it gives groups like ours that don't have you know, the resources of human geneticists or corn geneticists or mouse <laughs> geneticists, the ability to do all these yeah. uh, really neat analyses so so you've got a plant you've chopped you've extracted the dna you've chopped it up into these these bits that then yep. you can use the sequencer to sequence all those little bits and so any one plant you're going to know the sequence on all these bits of dna right and now you've got what how many plants at barneveld 400 right, right. so there's about 600 plants at barneveld 300 okay. plants at uh roughly speaking at stoughton and then up in minnesota another 300 or so so altogether, a little over a thousand, um, and uh, and yeah, so we sequence these little bits, and those all together represent just a small fraction of the hazelnut genome. So, yep. back to your original question, we're not sequencing every base pair in the genome because we don't need to for the purposes for our experiments, and that would be really expensive. So what we do instead is this sort of reduced representation sequencing. And just so and, people are clear. Yeah you're nowhere near to the point of sequencing actually actual genes that control traits of interest. This is just like a, a broad level fingerprint yeah, of that particular ex genome. Exactly. This is, this method is sometimes called genotyping by sequencing. And that's when you're using an enzyme to cut up the DNA, but a very related approach is called shotgun sequencing. And that kind of gets at the, <laughs> I think the, the idea very with a nice, visual image like you're just blasting the genome into these little bits and sequencing um you know just the ends of the fragments that are produced essentially is what is what you end up doing mm -hmm. um so once you have all these sequences what we have actually for two different uh hazelnut plants uh very kind of historically important accessions one's called rush one's called winkler they were important um in the early stages of the sort of mid, or, you know, early to mid 20th century initial efforts at crossing Americana with Avalana. Um, one was important in the Northeast, one was important, Winkler, that was Rush. Winkler was important in uh, the Midwest programs. We actually have sequenced and assembled what's called a reference genome. So that's where you do sequence every single base pair and get them all in the right order. And that's that's actually quite expensive and a whole different kind of sequencing <laughs> that, that I won't get into, but um, that's been sort of a sidebar project for these two plants. And what we can then do now, now that we have these, we have all of the chromosomes in hazelnut assembled and every base pair, not every, but a, a, a lot of them <laughs> um, assembled, we can then align these little, what are called short reads, so these 150 base pair sort of snippets to the reference genome using 
some fancy, uh, some some very <laughs> big computers and some some fancy software, we can basically figure out where each 150 you know long character string should fit into this 350 million long character string that is the entire hazelnut genome. And that might tell you so, in like which arm of which chromosome kind of thing. It'll give you the exact well not only that it'll tell you exactly where on the on any given chromosome this so you don't know going into it like you sequence 150 base pairs but which 150 base pairs did you end up sequencing? Well right. this alignment process allows you to take all of these reads from all of these individuals and stack them up against each other so they're all sort of in phase and that so that's that part is called alignment and then the uh next part of so this is sort of step three of genotyping where you're actually trying to look for and this is what's kind of critical to this uh, analysis that we're doing is you look for variants um across individuals so step one is to align all of these short reads and then you look at any given base pair position to see if there are some individuals that say at base pair position 1,602,000 on chromosome three have an A and others have a C. And that kind of a variant is called the single nucleotide polymorphism, often abbreviated SNP. And those are, the, and those are also a class of what's called uh, a marker. So a molecular marker or a genetic marker and those are the sort of bread and butter of the analyses that we're doing because we go from the whole genome down to the little fraction of it that we end up sequencing down to maybe 100,000 or 150,000 SNPs scattered evenly, but you know, probably 40 to 50,000 base pairs in between them across the whole genome. So it's another kind of reduced representation step where we're taking we're going from the whole genome down to this very limited set of markers that are informative from the perspective of determining how two plants differ from each other we don't really care about all the bases that all hazelnuts share in common we want to look for the sites that are variable right um so now those, you've got yeah. a plant with a do you call it like a snip profile like it has a, sure, a yeah, unique we, fingerprint we, we, if you will yeah all those are are great words for it a genetic fingerprint we can you can also just call it a gene like it's a little bit confusing like a genotype can be a genotype at a specific position but if you have all 150,000 of them you could also call that the genotype of that plant Got um it. and yeah that's and what so you then, end up using so then the hope is that a particular uh snp profile uh is correlated with a particular trait in the plant a phenotype of the plant so maybe all the plants in Barneveld that have nuts larger than say 0.5 grams all tend to have yeah. this SNP profile and anything smaller has that SNP profile yeah exactly that so that's ultimately a, that's, the goal or the that's hope exact, that's exactly it so once you have the genotype you want to in some way and you just got you just sort of suggested one way of correlating that variation in genotype with variation in phenotype because that's the ultimate goal is that we want to be able to use the genotype to do selection instead of the phenotype because the phenotype is really hard to get right you have to plant the plant in the field you have to keep it alive for years and years then you have to go and harvest it and measure it and do all this work the genotype 
you know, in principle, you can at day one, you know, when it sends out its first leaf in the greenhouse, take a little snippet a few weeks, take a little leaf full punch a few weeks later, have the genotype. And if you knew what these SNPs meant in terms of their impact on phenotype, well, that could really speed things up a lot and um, be way cheaper. So there's a few ways of doing that. One is um, to not use the whole, not, so you use the whole profile, but one method for trying to find these correlations is what's called association analysis. And you literally just look for variant variation in the in the genotype that happen that where all individuals that ha say have a specific allele at a specific SNP, so an A or a T or a C or a G, also have say really large kernels. Um, and then you can say, okay, this isn't necessarily like the gene for kernel size, but this marker is what we call linked probably <laughs> to a gene. So it's in the vicinity of a gene, or maybe it is actually in a gene itself. We don't know just from this analysis, but we do know that we could look at this specific position in the genome and say, you know, on average, plants that have this will have kernels that, ha that are 0.5 grams heavier, something like that. Another thing we can do, which is sort of the method that you were mentioning, is use the whole SNP profile, the whole genotype. And we don't, and what we do there is we use this entire genotype to look at how uh, related different plants are. And we use essentially the relatedness between plants that we have phenotypes for and plants that we don't have phenotypes for to predict the performance of the plants we don't have phenotypes for with the sort of basic idea that plants that are closely related will have similar phenotypes. So in the latter case, that's often called genomic prediction, where we're not actually like finding specific causal alleles. We're just predicting performance on the basis of all the genotype information we have. The other approach, association analysis, we associate specific SNPs with phenotypic variation. But the overarching goal is kind of the same. We're trying to be able to use, we're trying to be able to do selection on the basis of these genotypes because they're cheaper, they're faster, <laughs> and uh, just way easier to deal with. Um, yeah. So the um, couple other applications, right, is you can use this. Let's say we have a clone, and mm -hmm. we made a bunch of copies. Oh no, we made a mistake. We lost a tag <laughs> or a label, right? So and now right. somebody went and took that plant and made a ten thousand copies of it. Right. Now we better know that plant, right? So can you use this to know? If it's say sure. 8.76, got it. Yep. What about, um, you know, one thing we've talked about is making crossing blocks. So we've got parent A, parent B, tons of both of them in an isolated cornfield. We let them intercross and we suspect that all of the offspring will be on average good enough to be commercial. And so this could be a mm -hmm. method to create or, you know, plant material for the industry. But we also know pollen blows around miles right. and miles so can you use this to to know who mom and dad are of any given plant if you know if you have the SNP profile of mom dad and the kid sure can yeah we and and we've actually done both of those things we've submitted um multiple uh tissue samples from individual plants as well as multiple copies of those plants and been able to you know use the multiple plant sequencing as sort of the control um 
and see that, yeah, indeed, a true clone using this genotyping method will be nearly identical, uh, even you know, on two distinct runs of this entire genotyping pipeline. We've also been able to, if we have the sequences of both parents in a given cross, sequence all of the progeny and figure, and you know, even when you're doing a, a controlled cross by hand, there's going to be mistakes, <laughs> you know, mistakes. Is, plants want to cross with, you know, these outcrossing plants, they want to cross with each other. So even when you're trying to do a whole lot of pollen control, there'll always be some contamination and we can pick that out real easily um, with, with these markers. Um, so yeah, both of those uh, sort of quality control things are, are possible. And it's, it's kind of funny as this, as this, as these methods have gotten cheaper and more widespread, um, really established breeding programs with uh, like potato breeding programs or corn breeding programs with long pedigrees records going back, you know, maybe over a hundred years, people have been finding errors in them. And I think having a lot of fun, um, you know, just kind of correcting the historical record and finding some really interesting things that certain clones that are just extremely important to the industries, maybe for these you know, real staple crops are not what we thought they were. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, this is, um, this can be really helpful um, in, so, in that regard. So just curious, you've got this huge pile of data you got, is this like you analyze this on your laptop or do you have to schedule time on a supercomputer or, and how long is this it, going to take you to answer all the questions you want to answer? It depends. So one of the reasons for kind of cutting down the, the, the data set in these different reduced representation ways is to make it faster and easier to deal with because yeah, I mean, the data set that we get, we get off the sequencer is on the order of terabytes. Um, and then for that, so for those first steps where we are aligning reads and calling SNPs, that's done on not maybe what's maybe not a supercomputer, but we, 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 we farm that out to, um, so actually I should mention the sequencing is done by the UW uh, Biotechnology Center that owns one of these fancy aluminum machines and knows how to use it. Um, they're really expensive. And so it's become more and more common now for what are called core facilities to buy the sequencing platforms, which are super high throughput and then pool experiments from multiple research groups on any given run of that sequencer to, to drive down costs. And then, so the, and then the, the initial stages of the analysis is done by the Bioinformatics Resource Center, which has a really big computer. Um, and they're able, to, you know, with lots of processing cores and lots of RAM, and they're able to do those initial stages. Once I get the data in the form of the SNPs, um, I can, yeah, I can do that on my laptop. Um, I wish I had a slightly faster laptop because it can sometimes take, you know, 20 or 30 minutes for an analysis to complete. But um, now that we've got this data, um, it's, it's probably something where over the next few months, we'll start to be able to do both of those, or we will do both those association analyses and genomic prediction analyses and, you know, have, have results um, over the course of the summer here. So, cool. so you've yeah. been waiting on this data and working on it for a long time. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, with that Stoughton planting, I've been waiting since 2011 to know exactly what those plants are. Um, yeah. So that's what I'm most interested in. But for you, um, what question are you wanting to answer first? What have you been waiting to, to answer first? What's the most interesting? Yeah. 
So yeah, it, it might be good to mention the yeah, ad has been a long wait. And, uh, and, and that's so maybe the way that I represented it sounds like, oh, this is really easy. Uh, you know, once you know what you're doing, and actually, when you're doing this on a new species, there's all sorts of things that you have to optimize um, the the choice of the enzyme to cut up the DNA, uh, how long to run the sequencer, uh, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of things that we had to figure that we had to optimize and we didn't do them the right way the first time. And so now that we have a protocol down that actually works for Coralis Americana, I think, I think the method I just described is actually pretty straightforward and we'll be able to repeat it pretty easily. Um, but yeah, it has been a long time coming. So I guess for me personally, uh, there's a couple things that I'm really excited about. Um, one is you can also use these SNPs to look at not just like is parent A and parent B truly the parents of offspring C. You can also look at just like population, kind of population genetics questions, the demographics. So we can we can see, for instance, how wild are these Coralis Americana plants from the DNR? You know, how much Avalana is in them? Um, <laughs> and so there, and, and yeah, and how different are they uh, from the plants at Stoughton versus the plants at Rosemount say. So we can look at kind of like a big picture. Um, when you have this many plants, you can really start to see interesting clustering of subpopulations within these different interspecific hybrids, which is, I think, really cool to see. One of the things it gets at is how easy is it going to be to breed for these traits? How much of the variation in the trait is transmissible to the next generation? Having a high heritability means that it's going to, you're going to be able to make genetic gain. <laughs> so let's say talking about kernel, just to make it specific, kernel percentage. If kernel percentage has a really high heritability, then when we make crosses and select for kernel percentage, we'll be able to improve kernel percentage by a lot with every generation that we make selection. Mm -hmm. And these analyses that we're doing will not only give us like specific positions of specific SNPs that are associated with variation in the trait, They'll also tell us how easy it's going to be to continue to make improvement for these traits. And that's what I'm really excited about because we don't know right now. Um, we know that there's a lot of variation for these traits, but we have no idea how hard it's going to be, <laughs> you know, to improve certain aspects of these hybrids that we know need work. Um, we know that Coralis Americana needs like a higher nut quality to be competitive, or we would like it to. Uh, maybe yeah. it's not an absolute necessity. So, so yeah, that's what I'm really excited about. Um, and uh, I'm really optimistic too, because, you know, this is pretty wild material from, you know, if you stack it up against uh, corn or something, you know, that's been undergoing intensive selection for so long. Um, I think that there will be a lot of quote unquote low hanging fruit where there'll be traits where we can make really rapid gain or at least expect to on the basis of yeah. these, uh, these results. Well, and the American hazelnut population in particular has never really been worked for other worked with other than somebody, you know, private breeders over the years, making some collections from wild populations, growing them out. And maybe they found something interesting. It's kind of where rush came from or even Winkler. Mm -hmm. And we right. we have a little bit of data from Mike Demchik about the di diversity or genetic variability across the landscape, you know, from North Dakota to Michigan. 
And it seems to be, at least the, the analysis he did, a highly diverse population, but we really don't know how diverse it is for particular traits, both right. the genetic right. control of those traits and also the, um, the just the phenotype. And this Barneveld data set is really, you know, pretty amazing because we don't have anything like it yet. Nothing's been published yeah. before. So this is cool. Yeah, no, it's definitely uh, the first thing. It's been a, it's been a, it's been a lot of work. That's uh, been, uh, yeah. I maybe should just mention, like on the phenotyping side in particular. I mean, you've helped you and and your crew has helped a tremendous amount with this, Jason. But like a lot of people in Julie's program and um, Lois Braun and Mark Hammond up in Minnesota who have done so much work in recording. Uh, very precise phenotypes about all of these bushes because that's that's the real laborious part is that we hope to eventually be able to just use the genotypes but to do the analysis first we have to have both and uh, that's I think one of the reasons nobody's done this before is it's it's a ton of work and you end up you know spending a lot of time getting phenotypes on bushes that you kind of know aren't the ones you want but to do the experiment you still have to study them so Right. So yeah, it's it's been a lot of work, um, but I think what's come out of it is is hopefully going to be really cool. So. so what do you think? September, we can have you back on and you can tell us what you've learned. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, there's a big, I, I, I have a deadline, which is uh, <laughs> September 5th. There's the 10th uh, Haz International Hazelnut Congress happening in, uh, in Oregon, and I'm very hopeful to have something to present there. Um, right. So there'll be some preliminary results, I'd say by September for sure. Um, and then, I mean, my kind of like personal goal is to have uh, have some some really final results ready over the winter so that come next spring, uh, hopefully already these experiments can start to inform the decisions that are made with uh, Lois, you know, making new crosses in Minnesota or you know, anybody who's got a sort of family of seedlings trying to decide, hey, which ones of these am I going to put out in the field? Um, right. I only have so much, eight, you know, this is where the resource allocation question comes in. You can make a lot more seedlings than you have space to grow. And th these methods, you know, aren't a replacement for traditional breeding, but they can help you make those, those sort of resource allocation decisions in a way that hopefully maximizes the chances that you put really great plants in, into the field. Um, I mean, for so, 30 bucks, yeah. if I had a, a even a clue of what that plant might do or be, uh, you know, if, for 30 bucks at the seedling stage, I would gladly pay that. You'd pay it. Yeah, that's I mean, that's the idea is that it's, you know, it's not nothing, but it's a lot cheaper than growing a plant to maturity. You know, it's kind of a drop in the bucket um, at that point when you think start thinking about 10, 12 years of keeping these plants alive. So, yep. yeah. Um, Hopefully this fall and winter, we will be able to start, start doing something useful for people. Good. Well, Scott, thank you. Uh, this has yes. been great. A lot going on, exciting times. And I'm glad yeah. I can check in with you today. Brought to you by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension.